Amen. Praise the Lord how good he has been and how he's working um, in the lives of our students. Very grateful for Andy and Stacy. Uh, can we give him a hand? You know, he works, and so he had to take a week off, and then also for Dee and for Andrew, um, and then also a van that we were allowed to borrow from Travis. Um, I don't remember your last name, sorry, brother, um, but thank you so much. Um, and so, yeah, just, just praise the Lord uh, for, for his goodness. Um, so before we get into the word, can, can we pray and ask the Lord to, um, first, can we thank the Lord for just the incredible work he's doing in the hearts of our children? Lord, thank you. Uh, you're so faithful and so good. Lord, thank you that as you spoke through the, the preacher during camp, that they felt like uh, you were speaking directly to them, which means he was doing what he's supposed to do, is proclaim your word, and you take your word, and you let it see, uh, sit deep into their hearts. And Lord, I do pray that you would help our students to continually to grow in their gospel understanding, that as they struggle um, in their fight against sin, that they would proclaim these truths of who they are in Christ, that they've been set free, that their sins have been paid for, there's no more shame, no more condemnation, that their identity is not what people think about them, think about them or look at them, their identity is ultimately in you. And so we encourage their hearts, Lord, thank you uh, for the leaders that were able to take them and the work that you um, have done in them and through them. Lord, thank you uh, just for this church and the resources that you've provided for us that we can send our kids to camp. Thank you even now that we can gather and open up your word, Lord. And I do pray that as we open it up, as we look at the cross, well, can you help us to see the glorious truths of the cross. Can you stir our hearts and our affections for you? Can you help us to believe in you, whether it's believing for the first time or whether it's continually to believe? Lord, may your name be glorified. Holy Spirit, move, reveal truth to us. Help us to understand the truth, internalize the truth, be changed by the truth. And may your name be glorified. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 18 as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. We're almost done. We've got three chapters left, uh, so I want us to finish strong. The temptation has come. Maybe we should take time out. Maybe we should take a break. Um, but then the more I study John, the more I'm just kind of overwhelmed uh, by the Gospel of John. So I hope you can bear with me and just see the beauties and the glories of this text. But, but we are at the point where the time now has come. The Savior will soon lay down his life, but first he would be betrayed, he would be arrested, he would be denied, he would be accused, and then he would be beaten, and then he would go to the cross. And the cross is central to Christianity. It's central to what we believe, it's central to who we are, it's central to what we do, because the cross marks the moment where God offered His Son as the penalty for our sins, where sinful humanity was redeemed, where sin and death were defeated, and God extended the terms of peace to His enemies at the cost of the life of His Son. 
Now, when we think about the cross, a natural question arises to us, who's responsible for the cross? In other words, who murdered Jesus? Was it the Romans? Certainly, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they definitely perfected it. They were the ones who charged Jesus. They were the ones who executed the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate, a Roman governor, ordered his death. It was the Roman soldiers who pounded the nails in his hands and in his feet. Was it the Romans? Yeah. How about the Jews, the Jewish leaders? Were they not the ones who arrested Jesus and brought him to Pilate and demanded he be killed? When Pilate wanted to release Jesus, the, the Jewish leaders, in a sense, uh, incited the crowd to chant, crucify, crucify. And when Pilate wanted to get out of it, Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders were willing to accept responsibility and said, may his blood be on us and on our children. Was it the Jewish leaders? Yeah. Maybe it was us as well. It wasn't just the, the Romans and the Jews that caused his death. It was our sin. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And since Jesus died because of our sins. Now, all of these answers are correct. But here's the point that I'm trying to make, and the point that John is going to make in our text. John is not going to focus on the human liability, but rather, and here's my main point for, for this morning, if you're taking notes, this is what he's trying to show us, is that every step of the way to the cross is planned and controlled by Jesus. That's the point he's going to make, and this is what we're going to talk about for, for, for the rest of the morning, that every step of the way, every single instance, every event was planned and controlled by Jesus. For Jesus himself said in John 10, verse 17 to 18, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. And so when we look at the cross and we look at all the events that occurred before the cross, it's very easy for us to fall into the trap thinking that Jesus just got swept to the cross with forces outside of his control. But what John is trying to show us in our text is that, no, Jesus orchestrated every encounter and every single event is going to reveal that he was sovereignly in control of everything. And that's my premise, and that's my main point, and what I'm going to try to do is show you in the text that John is showing us that Jesus was in control, that he was and is the sovereign Savior. So, so, so let's, look at our, let's look at our text, John 18, verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So the first thing that, that, that we see if you're taking notes, how do we know that Jesus was a sovereign Savior, that he controlled 
Every step and every event was planned because Jesus selects this garden not as a place to hide, but rather a place to be found. He didn't pick the garden so that he could hide. He picked the garden so that he could be found because John tells us in verse 2 that Jesus, Judas knew the spot. How did Judas know the spot? Because that's where Jesus took his disciples off and that's where they met. That's where they hung out. So it almost seems like from the text that, yeah, maybe Jesus was hunted, but really what's happening, he is the one who's laying the ambush. He is picking the spot where he, knowingly, he will be found. And what's really interesting, a little side note, is interesting that all of this is taking place in the garden. Think about it. Scripture begins and ends in a garden. And at the cross, before the cross, at the pivotal moment, where do we find ourselves? In the garden. Why? Because the garden of Gethsemane was necessary because the fall took place in the garden of Eden. It was in the garden of Eden where Adam, our representative, failed, gave into temptation where sin and death entered into the world. And here in the garden, again, the garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus rise above the temptation victoriously for his own. In the Garden of Eden, God came looking for man and woman, and they were hiding because of their sin. And here in Gethsemane, man is looking for God, but to put him to death. And God is not hiding, but rather, in a sense, he is pursuing. He's in the garden not to hide, but he's in the garden to be found, to show us As Paul would reflect, he is a better and greater Adam who has won victoriously. The second point, how we know that our Lord is a sovereign Savior, if you're taking notes, we see Jesus takes the initiative. Look at the initiative that Jesus takes. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. So again, Jesus in the garden, not to to hide, but to be found. And And what does he do? When he sees the people coming and he knows why they're coming, he's not hiding, he's not running, but he takes the initiative. He is the one who confronts this group that is coming to arrest them. And I love what John tells us in verse 4. For Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. Even in John 13, 20, uh, 21, 26, Jesus predicted his betrayer and even motioned who his betrayer is going to be. He even predicted that Peter is going to deny him three times after Peter said, no, I will never do it. And and what John is trying to show us is that nothing was a surprise for Jesus. He was never caught off guard because he knew everything that was going to happen and he was in control of everything, orchestrating every little detail that's leading up to the cross. And after walking out of the garden to confront the soldiers, Jesus asked them a question. 
not, not, not to gather information because John tells us he already knew everything. But he's asking a question as he's showing that he really is in charge. Now, no other gospel writers are recording this exchange that is taking place. But the reason why John is writing it, because John is trying to show us Jesus is not some actor on a stage that is waiting for direction, but rather he is the one that's directing every moment. And when he reveals his identity, how did the soldiers respond? They took a step back and they fell to the ground. And we don't really know why exactly or how exactly they fell to the ground. John doesn't tell us. And if he doesn't tell us, he's showing us that's not the point I want you to focus on. But I want you to focus on why did it happen? Well, think about it. When did it happen? When did they fall to the ground? It's when Jesus revealed his identity. And when he revealed his identity, they stepped back and fell. In other words, what John is trying to show is when Jesus Jesus revealed his identity, He is showing us that his arrest was not in weakness, but in power. And if the soldiers stepped back and fell to the ground when Jesus revealed his identity, can you imagine how they would have reacted when Jesus revealed his full glory? We see the sovereign Savior going to the garden to be found. He takes the initiative. The third point, if you're taking notes, how we see our Lord as sovereign is that Jesus issues commands to the soldiers. He issues commands to the soldiers. Look at verse 7. Then Jesus asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I've not lost one of those you have given me. Now, we have to look at it, not through our 21st century lenses, Oh, I know it's very difficult for us to do, but we have to look through the lenses of what's happening in the context. These soldiers were not here to serve and protect its citizens. Quite frankly, they did not care about its citizens. They cared about themselves, and they were trained to follow orders from their superiors, and that's what they did. They were trained to conquer, and here the, the, the Jesus, who's been taken captive by them, is giving them instructions, and they're actually obeying the instructions of their captive. This was not normal. And in his instructions to these soldiers, we see Jesus cares for his disciples. He makes certain that the soldiers do not touch them because he promised to preserve them. Now, now this is very interesting. Um, when, when Jesus talked about in John 6 and 10 and in chapter 17, when, when Jesus talked about no one will snatch you out of my hand, I will keep you forever, I will preserve you, he wasn't talking about physical safety, but he was talking about spiritual, eternal security. But now we get to chapter 18 and Jesus commands the soldiers and say, hey, don't touch them. Take me, leave them alone. But then John kind of, in a sense, concludes in verse 9, well, this was to fulfill the words he had said. I've not lost one of those you have given me. 
And so John indicates this is to fulfill the promise that Jesus made regarding eternal security. And so the question is, is how does the physical protection of the disciples fulfill the earlier promise that Jesus made regarding eternal security? Like, how does that two match up? Because eventually what's going to happen to the disciples? They're going to be, they're all going to die. So how does he kind of put two and two together? I think the point that he is making is their physical safety illustrates the eternal security. In other words, if Jesus is in control of everything, including the physical world, if he's in in control of his arrest, his betrayal, his crucifixion, including the protection of his disciples... That also means he is on control even of the spiritual realm, including preserving the disciples to the final day. Which the opposite can be concluded. If Jesus was not in control of the physical realm, how could he be in control of the spiritual realm and preserving his own through the final day? And John is saying, look at the sovereign Savior. Who can protect his disciples? And if he can protect his disciples from physical harm, he can definitely protect them from any spiritual harm as well. And this, reass- this should provide reassurance for his disciples. And so as Jesus is in control of everything, he is orchestrating everything. Every event is taking place under his rule, under his control. Peter, he just has a hard time understanding. And look at Peter. Look at how Peter responds at at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Like, like Peter's, like many of us, he, he sees what's going on, and in his mind he's thinking, I can't believe this is happening. Clearly, Jesus has lost control. His luck has run out. And if Jesus has lost control, it's up to me now to regain control because Jesus needs protection. He needs me to stop this arrest from taking place. He needs me to take charge. Little does he realize that Jesus planned everything out and nothing is out of step of his will. And Peter's action to protect Jesus, though understandable in a sense, are useless. Because in a sense, they are a denial of why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to to die. He came to die. That was his very purpose. And that's what he indicates. He indicates to Peter, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Which means the cup is prepared from who? It is from the Father given to the Son. This cup is the full divine judgment of God. And Jesus is going to take every last drop of this cup on his lips at the cross. And this is what he's saying to Peter. I have come to die. I have come to face the wrath of God. This is my purpose. I am not out of control, but I am controlling everything because I am the sovereign Savior. We get to the the fourth point. We'll see the fulfillment of Caiaphas' unintentional prophecy about Jesus. If you're taking notes, Caiaphas's unintentional prophecy about Jesus. 
look at verse 12. Then the company of soldiers, the commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. And so they arrested Jesus, they bound Jesus, and what does John remind us of? Hey, do you guys remember Caiaphas? Remember the unwitted prophecy that he spoke, that God in a sense spoke through him? He was the one who planned Jesus' death, that Jesus has to die so that others could live. And by John reminding us of these words, he's reassuring us that the injustice that Jesus is facing and is suffering is part of God's plan to rescue humanity from the bondages of sin. Jesus is taking deliberate control steps to the cross so that we can live so that we could be set free. And so during the the questioning from the high priest, the, the scene shifts to Peter. Look at 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. The disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door, so the other disciples, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing them with them warming himself. Earlier, Peter declared his devotion to the Lord. In John 13, 37, he says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, really? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me. Not once, not twice, three times. So here we see another indicator. How do we know our Lord is sovereign in all the events? Because if you're taking notes, Peter's denial. Peter's denial wasn't as much as about him as about showing us how our Lord is in control. That even with him being betrayed and denied, it does not frustrate his plans because he uses that for his glory and for our good. And what we see in our text is the fulfillment of Jesus' words providing us evidence that he was aware and in control of all of these events. And as, as, as we wrap up, we, we, we look to, to verse 19. We see now Jesus being brought and being questioned. But what he is doing, he turns around the question and starts to question them. Look at verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And this is what Jesus says. I've openly spoken to the world, Jesus answered him. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I've spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, Give evidence about the wrong, but if rightly, why do you hit me? 
Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, so in the first of numerous interrogations, basically what Jesus does is he turns the table around on his interrogators. Which is my fifth point. How do we know that Jesus is the sovereign savior and control of everything? Because he turns the table on his interrogators, if you're taking notes. Jesus turns the table on his interrogators. Again, look, look, look at verse 21. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. Look at verse 23. If I've spoken wrongly, Jesus answered them, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? And what we have to understand is Jesus is innocent, but he is not a victim. A victim is somebody who's not innocent, is not always is innocent, but have also lost control over his or her circumstances. But here Jesus hasn't lost control. He reminds them, look, I did not do anything in hiding. All of my teachings have been in the temple or in the synagogue for all to hear. If you really want to know what I taught about, go ahead and ask those who were in the crowd. And what did Jesus teach about? Well, he, he taught about being the bread of life. No one can come to him, will ever be hungry, and all of those who will believe in him will never be thirsty. He taught that he was the good shepherd and that his sheep hear his voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch him out of my hand. In other words, his message was the message of the gospel, that he came to die, and through his death bring salvation to sinners who are cut off from God. In the rest of the passage, we see Peter finally denying Jesus in the rooster crows. But what John is saying, the drum that he is constantly beating in this narrative is that everything Jesus said would happen has come to pass and everything that has come to pass should give us confidence that our sovereign Savior is in control. So, so here's my application. My point that I've been making, everything that took place shows us that every step, every event, Jesus was in control and planned everything. Here's the application. It's not in your notes. It was too many slides. I didn't want to overwhelm you, but maybe you want to write it down. John is showing us, and the point that he is showing us is that Jesus was not some helpless victim or courageous martyr, but he is a sovereign savior. And this point is important because this point shows us the purpose of the cross and how we should respond to the cross. So, for example, if Jesus was simply a helpless victim of senseless violence, the cross has absolutely no purpose to it whatsoever. And the only response to the cross is that of compassion. Like, let's go ahead and watch the passion of Christ. Let's all have a good cry and just feel sorry for Jesus and say, gee, he was just such a good man. What a shame. Bless his heart if you're in the South. If Jesus was a courageous martyr, then the purpose of the cross 
is a wonderful example of courage and inspiration. And the response of that should be, we need to be inspired and to be encouraged of this bravery. Let's look to Jesus then as this wonderful example, this inspiration to bravery, and let's maybe try to emulate it as best as possible. And then pressure comes under us and we all fold. No. But if Jesus is a sovereign Savior, that means the cross has a purpose. And the sovereign Savior has a mission. And the appropriate response is not compassion, not inspiration, but that of faith because of the purpose and the mission of the sovereign Savior. And what's the purpose? And what's the mission of the sovereign Savior? To save us from the destruction and bondage of sin and the judgment of God's coming wrath. Throughout our, our, our service, from, from our call to worship, from the songs that we've sang, from our confession and assurance, what's the truth we've been beating all the time? Look how majestic our God is. He is truly awe-inspiring and wonderful and holy. And who are we? We are sinful, rebellious creatures. Even the best of us are sinful, which means we need a Savior. And we are reminded in the songs that we've sang and in the words that we have read that we have this Savior. And He is not a helpless victim. He is not a brave Savior. He is a sovereign Savior with a purpose of coming to die in your place and in my place to pay for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the world so that the wrath of God can be satisfied. And nothing we can do can change our position against God. No matter how good we are or how perfect we think we are, we all fall woefully short. No amount of effort can repair our relationship with God. Something radical had to be done. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. The perfect son of God, born as a human baby, lived a sinless life and then took our punishment, our sin upon himself. And because of his sacrifice, he extends peace the terms of peace between creation and the Creator. And the only response is not of pity, is not a resolve to try better and to be like Him, but rather of faith. And what that means is a total dependence on who He is and what He has done. As if we're throwing ourselves at the feet of the cross saying, my sins need to be paid for. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying for them all by dying in my place. It's a call of dependence on our Savior. That is a call of faith. Let's enter into a time of prayer before we get to the table. I, 
I know all of us, we have different stories, we have different backgrounds, we have different struggles. But I just want to ask foundational questions. Do you believe that Jesus died in your place? That you have been a rebellious creature rebelling against the Creator and that God is holy and that He is righteous and that you have to pay for your sins one way or another? But Jesus took that upon Himself. Do you believe that? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And this morning, if you haven't, I just I want to encourage you right now. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Turn away from your evil ways and turn to Him. Throw yourself at His feet knowing there is mercy and grace waiting for you. And then for some of you, maybe you, many of you are believers. And in your struggle against sin, look to the cross where he paid for it. And for when you feel defeated, when you feel guilty and shame, and you feel like God doesn't love me anymore because of just how I've been performing and behaving, Can you look to the cross and say, no, at the cross, that's where Jesus paid for my sins in full. He took on my guilt and shame, and he set me free. He gave me his righteousness, and when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So can you thank him for that? And can you continue to believe in those glorious truths? Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You know what we're thinking. You know what we're believing. You know the idols that we're bowing down to, the hopes that we have. You know whether we truly trust you or not. Lord, can you, through your Spirit, reveal truth? Can you expose our sin? Can you convict us? And can you bring about genuine repentance in our lives and in our hearts? Can you help us to truly trust you and depend on you? Can you help us to be overwhelmed by just the beauty of the cross? Can you stir in us this, this, this overwhelming joy and gratitude? And can you help us to cling to the cross as we run this race set before us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to sit ready at the table, <laughs> what does the table remind us of? the cross of Jesus Christ. What it reminds us is we get to sit at the table not because you've had a good week and you qualify, because the reality of it is if it was based on our performance, all of us would be disqualified. But yet we get to sit at the table because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. 
his body given to us, his blood shed for us. And when we eat it and when we drink it, it kind of uh, reminds us as it ministers to all of our senses. We see it, we taste it, we smell it, we hear the glories of the gospel. We are reminded it's not something that I need to do or something that I have done. No, it's something that Christ has done on my behalf. And by receiving it, it is an act of faith, believing that what he's done for me on the cross, his body given to me, his blood shed for me, paid for my sins in full. I am taking it and believing that what he's done for me is enough and sufficient. There's nothing for me to add to it. The price has been paid. And I get to sit with other brothers and sisters in Christ and remind them, come on in. Look at what our, our Savior has done. Isn't it sufficient? Isn't it beautiful? Fix your eyes on him. And so as we get ready to distribute these elements, like I want you to meditate on these truths and what Christ has done for you, the sufficiency of the cross and the wonderful benefits that you get to share in, not because what you have done, but what Christ has done on your behalf. In the assurance portion of our text that we proclaim to one another, verse 12 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How did he do it? Did he just take your sin and just throw it away and pretend it didn't exist? No. He removed your sins and got rid of it by paying for it and washing it away by his precious blood. His body given to you. Eat in remembrance of him. His blood that was shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of him. Can you just take time right now and just thank the Lord for his body and his blood? Thank the Lord for removing your sin by paying for it in full and for washing you as white as snow. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise you. We give you all the glory, all the honor. We lift your name up on high. What an incredible Savior. Lord, may we just look to you and just be in awe of you and just overwhelmed by you. We love you. We praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our sovereign savior. <laughs>